Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. Hey, thanks for joining me on another episode of The Struggle is Real. We are covering one of my favorite topics today, and that's leadership. And I know there are a ton of aspiring leaders that listen to this podcast, so I feel like this topic can't be covered enough. Joining me in the conversation today is Ben Burley. Ben has been leading people for over 15 years. He saw the struggle managers had with the balancing act of leadership. Ben started writing articles to serve those who aspired to be an attentive and considerate manager. At the time, Ben didn't realize this would change the trajectory of his career. But these posts turned into the Thoughtful Leader blog, where Ben has been sharing leadership content for over five years. Ben started a podcast under the same name and also serves as a coach for leaders across the world that want to make work better. And I love that idea. This is a great episode if you're a new manager or hoping to someday be leading a team of your own. We discuss how to gain leadership experience as a junior employee, debate being liked versus being respected as a leader, and discuss how to have better one-on-one meetings. I hope you enjoy my conversation with a certified leadership coach and thoughtful leader himself, Ben Burley. Let's start with the right and wrong reasons that someone should want to become a manager. Is there good and bad reasons for that? Or is everybody have good intention whenever it comes to wanting to be a manager? Uh, I think that's a really good question. And I think that obviously everyone's going to have different reasons for it. Um, but I think there's certain reasons that lend themselves to being a, being able to be a better leader or manager than others. So one trap I see happen all the time is um, the most technical person or the most the best technical person in a team becomes that manager of that team. They don't necessarily, often they don't really want to be um, a manager, but most companies have this this uh, sort of structure where you to get more pay, more money, you have to go up the chain. And to do that, you generally have to take on management positions. So you're adding a people management aspect to your technical role. And not everyone is good at that. Um, often the most technical people are actually, they love being technical and doing the actual work um, because they're really skilled at it. And the people management thing can be a bit of a drag for them. And uh, plus they, they haven't really invested time or they're not passionate about it. So they can actually um, cause some bad outcomes there. So well, I'll say motivations for wanting to be a good uh, or wanting to be a manager. If you enjoy helping people develop and grow and providing direction um, and yeah, enjoying taking on accountability for, for leading a, leading people, then that is definitely a great motivation for that. If it is all about the money um, and the, and the status um, that can be, that can be problematic. It's not like you can't be a good leader if that's your goal, um, but it can lead to people um, who have strong egos trying to satisfy their ego by climbing the climbing the career ladder and those sorts of things, but not necessarily thinking about their people. So the leaders that I generally work with are what I refer to as thoughtful leaders, I guess, and they often 
they're often really well placed to do people management work and people leadership because they think often about other people first. So they're not always self-absorbed and thinking about what they want out of the situation. Yeah, and I don't know why organizations still haven't figured that out because I see it, I've seen it um, firsthand and um, in, in coming into an organization, you're right. The Usually the most technical person is the one that ends up taking on the management or the, the leadership responsibility, especially in sales. And I don't understand why you pull your best salesperson out to be in charge of leading the rest of the team, um, especially if they're not really interested in doing that. But I'm thinking to a colleague of mine and a really, really great technician got into management, did that for a few years because of the whole, like he had a dead end when it came to his career path because there wasn't really any more, any further that he could go on the individual contributor route. So he ended up flipping over to the management side, did that for a couple of years and realized he absolutely hated that. And he just wanted to have his desk job back and become, and, and go back to being an individual um, contributor. Why are organizations still continuing to repeat that mistake? Yeah, I think it's just, it's just tradition in terms of how that's the organization structure was built. I think, um, that was generally, you know, you get into an organization and you then you have to progress in some way. And that's an obvious way to give people more responsibility is to make them more responsible for the, the, the direction of a certain section or team of the company. I think in, in your colleague's case, or the, um, the self-awareness is good to have got to that management position and gone, you know what, I don't really like this. Um, and I think the other the, the worst cases of that is when someone gets to that level they really don't like it they're a bit out of their depth and they start acting out and being sort of bullying and those sorts of things because they're feeling insecure about their role and those sorts of things and that can be pretty bad for everyone around them um i think yeah there, there has to be a bit of an unraveling what i've seen work well in some companies is where people can um, be specialist in, in an area and provide advice and guidance and a leadership role without having to take on line management. Um, and that can be really good for your technical experts that are really high level, but are not um, interested in that people management space. I also think there, there needs to be, there, there's this respect gained by people who are super technical in a certain area of expertise. Even so sales is an example as well, where, you know, if you're the best salesman, there's this respect and credibility that that person gains from selling the most, even if they don't, um, I think I've heard it before, sales, good sales covers all sins or something, was what I heard, where they'll, they'll happily promote the best salesperson because, um, you know, they're so valuable to the company, regardless of how they behave, they're selling well, awesome, we'll just put them in the spot. But I think um, it is sort of how we assess people. If you put a person who's less technical, but great with people, um, great with leading people in a senior role, you've got to have some way to make sure they gain the re respect and credibility they need to lead in that role as well, um, rather than falling back on this technical expert is the best type of leadership. So Ben, imagine if I was a junior employee on your team, maybe a few years yep. of professional experience, but none, no, no um, formal experience in managing or, or leading people. And we were sitting down having our review. And I told you that I was really interested in sometime in the near future, getting into management with inside of this company. What, 
what questions would you be asking during that first conversation? So I'd be asking a bit about your motivations, like why, why do you want to do that? What interests you? Um, and I think we'd, I'd also have a conversation about what you think leadership is um, in this hypothetical situation. I'm not going to ask you because I think you know what leadership is. <laughs> um, the, because what it, there's still a bit of a stereotypical point of view where leadership is where you manage people and they report to you and they have to do what you say. Um, but there's a heap of different leadership that can happen outside of that space. So you don't necessarily have to have 10 people reporting to you or even one person reporting directly to you. Um, leadership can be about influencing. Um, and really, it's, I think here's a good, good chance to have a conversation about the distinction between management and leadership. And I think that's what I'd touch on as well in, in this situation you're talking about in terms of having a conversation about that. Because I see management as keeping something stable, keeping something running, um, reducing risk, um, and you know, keeping it managed is sort of the connotation there is that we're going to keep it stable, we're going to make sure it all works so everyone's you know, comfortable. Leadership for me is more about change, it's more about the intent, it's making changes, making improvements, um, doing things that are uncomfortable and helping people get there. So setting the direction, helping people to follow. And so as, as a result of that, there's plenty of opportunities out there in organisations that aren't about having a formal leadership role. So for example, um, I'd ask about, you know, are there any clubs, committees, initiatives, projects, improvement opportunities that you have seen in the organisation that you think could really be beneficial to the team or the area where you're working? And do you want to lead one of those things? And that doesn't mean we give you a big team, but it might mean you coordinate, you lead people, you tell people um, what, you're, what we're trying to achieve and you help them along the way and you lead that improvement. And that doesn't mean that, um, yeah, it doesn't mean you have to be a formal manager, but it means that you're having the intent to work with other people to change something and to make something better. And I think um, leadership, it's also about behaviours as well, obviously that role modeling the right behaviors I see as leadership as well. So even if, you know, you see, you help resolve conflict in a team or you know someone's upset about what's going on in their role and you help them resolve it and you help facilitate a solution to that or something like that or provide guidance, then that's a form of leadership as well. So I'd sort of ask about what I'd do is to focus on, okay, what opportunities can you see out there? Um, Acknowledge that you might have to do slightly more than what you would do normally in some cases. So if you want to take on extra things that are not part of your core role to, to gain some leadership experience, sometimes you just have to do a little bit more, which is, which is um, when you're motivated to do that, I, you know, it's never usually a problem because the person will definitely put in extra discretionary effort. Um, so I would yeah, encourage saying yes to opportunities and then asking, you know, asking the question, if you see something out there and you go, oh, I reckon I could improve this or lead this, you can ask. Um, some people aren't, the leaders have to be careful as well because some people aren't extroverts and uh, sort of alpha personalities where they'll run around asking to lead things and be the boss. But I think employees need to know that they should ask for something if they want to have an opportunity to lead and to take on leadership opportunities. So ask the, ask your line manager, ask the executive, whatever it is, 
don't just assume that they're going to come to you and ask you because some of them are busy. They won't think of it. And that's a, that's a big one as well. Because some people will sit in the corner and say, oh, I wish someone would offer me this leadership opportunity, but you sort of have to take it sometimes. And it can take courage, but it's as simple as saying, hey, I think this would really improve this, the team, the way we're working. Do you mind if I lead it? And you know, there's a lot of people, myself included, would pretty much love that because then I don't have to do it myself as the manager and the, and the person can get leadership experience that they can put on their CV and things like that. I agree with that. I think committees, clubs, especially internal, are a great way to start gaining some leadership experience. Something as simple as even like the um, go green committee, like a lot of organizations have some kind of green committee or some kind of like internal events committee, or there's always things popping up, initiatives popping up that they need someone to lead this group of people around. And some of that I yep. believe is probably more management, like the whole adage, like you manage things and you lead people. Um, some of that might be managing, you know, someone needs to schedule the meetings, the reoccurring meetings, set the agenda, follow up with people to make th make sure things are still moving through on this initiative. But then you also get some opportunity to, as you mentioned, problem solve or, um, you know, create chemistry with inside of that, that team itself. Do senior executives or managers look, when, whenever you're trying to identify internal talent, potential management talent, what are some of the things that they're looking for? A uh, big one is proactivity. So someone who's proactive, going in there, um, putting their hand up and saying, I want to do this thing um, and going and, you know, trying to improve the situation. So rather than, and it is, this is where I'm a bit cautious because in, in the consulting world where I worked for quite a few years, it was very common for the senior leaders to expect people to just jump up and take opportunities and, and say, yep, I want to do that, put themselves forward. It was very, you know, dominant culture. Um, but that doesn't work for everyone because I've, I've worked with some really good leaders who are not that way and they don't push themselves forward at the expense of other people. They um, are more quiet in their background, quiet achiever types, but they're still great at leading people and, and projects or whatever it is. So I'd be cautious of saying, I think stereotypically, executives still look for people who will push themselves forward. But I think you've you've got to identify other qualities as well. So proactive is good. Um, communication skills are huge in terms of being able to communicate with people, get along with people and resolve conflict. Um, and then understand different needs of other people as well. So that empathy piece is super important as well um, for the people leadership. Um, other than that, I think, I think the attitude is huge. So, Going along with the proactive attitude is often for me better than the technical skills. I'd often take someone who's slightly less expert technically if they have a great attitude because they're more likely to be able to push through, keep a positive mindset, and that helps inspire other people around them. So they're the characteristics I'd look for. And I would also be careful to look for the, the more quiet achievers that may have great potential without pushing themselves forward really hard. And to do that, sometimes it's as easy as just having a private conversation with that person to say, hey, I was thinking about this. Would you be interested in something like that? And you might find they jump up and say, yeah, I'd love that. 
but they were sort of waiting to be asked because they feel like they need permission. And that's not necessarily bad, but because they're not confident and they, you know, they're too introverted for leadership. I think a lot of it's based on the type of personality they have and the type of motivations they have. So they're less likely to just jump forward and grab opportunities. They're more likely to make sure they have permission and they're a bit more compliant and then they'll go for it as soon as they get that permission. So I think that's that's a that's an important one. I think because what we don't want is a bunch of um, you know dominant personalities running around the organisation clashing. And I think this is where um, now we're seeing much more that the bigger rise in um, female leadership as well. And typically females don't. Well, the stereotypical male manager is the dominant and the loud person in the room. And I've worked with some amazing female leaders who are just not that way at all, but they get results using an entirely different method. And it's just a um, much more pleasant environment to work in, to be honest, rather than the super dominant environment. How are things in Australia with um, female leadership? Is there still an obvious glass ceiling there and something that the culture is proactively working towards? Um, I know here in the US, and I know you work with um, US clients and, and you probably consume a lot of the leadership topics or um, blogs that come out of uh, the United States as well. But obviously it's something diversity in general, something that we're really interested. We put actually some mandates out, um, you know, out in California, there's mandate, you know, some of the, the um, stock indexes have mandates as well, that there has to be a certain percentage of diversity on, on boards. Is similar things happening in Australia? Yeah, there is. There is progress being made, but I would say there's still a lot of work to do. Um, and, and we sort of follow, Australia seems to follow the US in, you know, a few years behind, basically. Um, but yeah, the, the political space is where it's heavy, it's heavily male dominated still. And there's a lot of problems in that space. But I can see and the, the quotas on boards and things like that is becoming um, is coming in, but there's been a bit of friction on that as well as to whether that's the best approach um, or not. I'd say we're definitely making progress, but there is still the salary gaps and all those sorts of things. So we're still working through those issues in Australia as well, definitely. What's your opinion on the board's piece to it, mandating a certain percentage? I think, yeah, I think that's a, I think it can be beneficial to start with because what I think is it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a culture shift. So if you're not able to easily find the people that the females or the diversity, whatever you're looking for in your board, then I think it is a good idea to implement something like that to start with as a transitional arrangement. Because what I think you'll start seeing after that is in place for a while, the need for that will be less because you're setting that example, you're setting the culture that, you know what, you know, anyone can do this, anyone can achieve these these positions and you'll just start to see more people being available in the market, I think, to able to take those roles. And I think the need for those quotas may lessen over time. Um, mm. That's sort of my perspective on it, yeah, but I'm no expert in that sort of area, sure. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I just asked you to share your opinion. I was kind of curious, um, but I know you men mentioned R Richard Branson. Is that somebody you look up to or, or who are some of your um, idols in the leadership space? Yeah, I, I like P, um, Richard Branson's one who I think 
has done he's he's probably more of the entrepreneurial space but he's very much the visionary yeah. um and building up people to help them run things for him so rather than him having to do the work he's obviously creating cultures that he tries to make positive so that people can do that work and he doesn't he can go off in his next big venture i think um some of the positive things i've seen around um other leaders, people like Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand. She's a New Zealand prime minister, um, possibly not as familiar to US listeners, but she has been really good in the face of the COVID crisis, um, especially for New Zealand, um, in being able to manage that in a way that's quite sensitive, but also um, decisive. So she's she's got a certain style about her, which I quite like, which is... Um, she definitely has empathy and she she's certainly not a directive type leader who tells everyone what to do all the time. She takes opinions, but she seems to make the call when she needs to. And I think she's she's found that nice balance between sensitivity and being and being the boss, um, being the prime minister, which I think has been really, really impressive from my point of view. Yeah. And actually that sparks something for me. I think it was either one of your recent podcasts or maybe one of your recent blogs you talked about this dichotomy, or actually you were de demystifying this dichotomy that you can be both liked and respected as a manager. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think you can be. And that's what I, as a leader, I aim to be that. If I can have both, then I definitely will take that any day of the week. But if I can only have one, I'll have respect every time. Because being, so being liked is something that's often seen as a, a crutch like people you know if you're a leader and you're too dependent on being liked then you are going to be possibly compromising your leadership standards so you know you might let, let people get away with bad behavior because you don't want them to be upset with you all those sorts of things um, but on the other hand being liked is a really valuable attribute in leadership so if you're a nice person to work with, people enjoy working with you, that can go a really long way in leadership and influencing people in your workplace, having your team follow you, having your team enjoy coming to work, that can be really, um, really useful. So I don't think we should sort of say, oh yeah, being liked isn't important. I think it is. Um, and But being respected is sort of where it's, where you sort of require that respect to be able to do your job effectively. So when people don't respect you, they're likely to, you know, disregard your opinions, maybe subvert what you're trying to do in the team, um, not show that proactivity and discretionary effort um, because they just don't see that you're a credible type of person um, although for whatever reason. So I think you can have both, um, but I think respect is really important because you've got to have that authority and people do have to listen to you. And just being liked doesn't really cut it because if you're just being liked and you try to maintain that, um, you're sort of, that's your Achilles heel. If you always need to be liked, then you're vulnerable to people, um, you know, if they don't like you, are you trying to cater for them? And that can cause massive issues in a team where people, oh, you know, that's my friend. I've been, I've led them for 10 years. I don't want to upset them. But why you you know so you let them get away with poor performance or poor behaviour, but what you're really doing is upsetting all these other people in the team who are seeing you um, let that person get away with poor performance or behaviour, 
and so you're eroding that. So every time you try to get someone to like you, there's a very good chance that someone else is not liking you because of that. <laughs> so, so then you're sort of losing, you know. Hey, managing is hard. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, definitely. It's, it's, definitely. it's a challenge. And I see my peers, you mentioned that a lot of times you, you crutch on being liked and, um, you know, that can hamper being respected. And a lot of my peers and a lot of the people listening are in their 20s and their first time managers, and they do crutch on being liked. They don't want to ruffle the feathers. And maybe a little a bit of that, if I were just taking some assumptions, might be imposter syndrome. A lot of times young leaders end up walking into positions I actually had um, uh, one of my former guests, um, Mason Burchette, he was like 22 or 23 when he took like a um, facility manager position. And most of the guys that he was managing was twice his age. And it was interesting because yep. we started having that conversation about how to start gaining respect. I mean, you went from being a peer one day and being liked across the board, everybody liked how hard he worked and, and all of this. And then all of a sudden he became your manager. He's half your age. That dynamic changes a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really, really good topic. Um, and I've dealt with that personally myself where in the consulting space, you get thrown into different organizations, different projects. And I think I was about 30 at the time. Um, and I was in a working in a project leading people who were about 45, 50 years old who had been in the company for a long time, very expert at what they did. And I had the same sort of thing. So the same as your colleague or friend, I think you were saying was the 22 managing a facility and all the people around were much older, um, similar type of situation. So in those situations, you're going to have to, in my opinion, you're going to have to eat some of the initial standoffishness that's going to happen. You're just going to have to eat it up and, and put up with it. What, what do you mean by just that? Just temporarily. Well, what I mean is you just got to, like there, there's inevitable that the people that you are leading, there's going to be some of them in there who are going, who is this young punk? Why would I listen to them? And you, there's nothing really you can do about it instantly. Like in the, in the short term, you're going to have to just put up with that and, and work through it. And what I tended to do was actually almost, almost ignore it to a point of not do anything special about it, but keep doing what I'm trying to do. But the, but the things I did do was try to develop trust, which is all about, uh, and in this case, when you're working with older people, particularly, or more experienced people, um, definitely about listening a lot. So the worst thing you can do as a young leader when you're in that leadership role and you might be leading people who are a bit resentful or they might not, um, they might think you're too young. The worst thing you can do is just do what you want and not ask for opinion, not ask for what they think because they've, they've got experience. And in the consulting example I told you before, they had heaps of experience in the organization and their field. So it was really, it would have been stupid of me to just do what I thought was best without talking to them. So what I ended up doing was consulting quite a lot with the team and saying, hey, what do you think about this? How have you, how have you experienced this in the past? Will this work? What do you think about this? Facilitating that conversation. Because what that does, it just, it just shows you that you're thinking about their expertise and you're bringing their expertise to the table. You're not ignoring it and saying, I'm the boss, do it this way. There may be situations where you have to make a call which might upset someone. But in general, I think it's really important to be fairly inclusive when you're leading a team that's super experienced. 
So let's shift gears here. And I actually want to talk about something super tangible that through research caught my eye. It's actually maybe top of mind for me because I worked for a boss and then ended up leaving that organization. And then she actually recruited me back to the new organization that she's working at. And we made a small shift in the way we worked. And that was scheduling one-on-one, reoccurring one-on-one meetings. And we didn't do it prior. Um, I was part of a, a, of a team that I was the only person working remote. She, I guess, didn't really see the need for the one-on-one, or we just didn't really think about it. And then now I moved into this position where everybody in the, our organization or in our team is working remote. So there is a little bit of a need to schedule out these one-on-ones, but now retro, retrospectively looking back on it, we just hit our 90, I hit my 90 days a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about the things that were different since the last time she, um, she was managing me. And one thing we both pointed to that turned out to be a huge piece of, I think our, our success in our relationship was this reoccurring one-on-one meeting. And and then I started researching you, and I came across I don't I don't know I think it was um, a podcast that that you were on. You were talking about conducting one on one meetings. First, can we de- demystify that one on ones are important, and that they're just not another meeting? Because I'm sure I'm hearing some of those people in the back of their heads thinking that. And then second to that, mm-hmm. why are why do you believe that they are important? Yeah. Um, this is a really common question because there are so many meetings going on all over the world <laughs> in every organization that people are thinking, why do I need another one? And if you've got 10 people in your team, that's 10 meetings, 10 one-on-one meetings you would have to add to your week or fortnight, whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, they are super important. And it's really it's really interesting that you you and your manager found that that was one of the reasons why the relationship and the working relationship was much better was because of these one-on-ones. And I think that's, that's a testament to why they're so important. So I think they're really important because they, they give you that chance. Let's say, let's say we do them weekly every week to catch up with someone who's busy, um, has authority and is your, has sort of control over your role and, and what you're doing at work. And so that's really important because particularly the busyness factor. So a lot of managers are like, well, I don't have one-on-ones because I, well, not a lot of managers, but some managers say, I don't have time for one-on-ones because they're just another meeting and I can catch up with my team in other meetings about work anyway. But the problem with that is you're not giving someone a safe space to talk about how they're feeling at work, um, how how they're feeling in the role, Um, And and the future focus as well, which I think is really important. I'm not sure whether you touched on it with your manager, but one of the things is that I find really important about one-on-ones is talking about the future. So what do you want to do? Um, Is there anything you want to learn? Are there any other teams you'd like to, you know, move into or, you know, careers you want to progress? And one of the, the things that trips people up as well in management is they, they, you know, oh, Justin's such a great worker. I couldn't stand it if he left. I really want to leave him in my, keep him in my team. And so they will avoid those conversations about what Justin wants to do in the future because they're worried that he might go and leave and, and do something else. But the real, the real thing about leadership is developing people so they can do something better to be that 
help that can help them get to where they want to go mm. because it's much better to have someone like a Justin in your team who's really motivated and doing a great job for less time than a Justin who's not motivated and hates his job but stays there for 10 years you know because that's not going to help anyone either so the one-on-ones are really important because they do provide that safe space not everyone so you might have a team meeting where you've got five people in a room and you're all meant to raise issues and talk about topics not everyone's comfortable in that space to raise issues in front of everyone else, um, particularly if they're serious. So one-on-ones give you an opportunity of that safe space to talk to your manager or leader one-on-one, which is really important. Um, And the future focus is huge. So you talk about the future. Not, Not often do we have leaders, in my experience, that want to know what you would like to do in the future and try to bring that into the workplace somehow. So our Justin loves graphic design, right? You might not have anything to do with graphic design. Your role might be sales, right? You're in sales. You say, oh, you know, I've been doing these side projects at home, graphic design, I've been designing a new website, whatever it is. That leader could go, you know what? We've got some little opportunity here for our team. We need to do a piece of work like that. Maybe Justin could lead that. It might not be anything to do with his core role, but it's one of his passions and he would really love it. So you incorporate that in. It's just a bit of a trivial example, but there's lots of times where you can actually incorporate something that's passion for someone, even if it's not completely work-related to your current job and get them to work you know, in that space temporarily that can really improve motivation. So one-on-ones is how you find out about that stuff. And the other thing I really think is really important for one-on-ones is being able to spot spot changes in behavior, um, mood, and attitude. So often if you're if you're really busy and you're running around all day in meetings all day and you never meet with your team, it's hard to sort of have a conversation with someone and say, oh, you know, how is Justin feeling today? How's he, how's he trending over the last couple of weeks? Whereas if you have a constant touch point every week, where you've got 30 minutes maybe to have that one-on-one meeting, you can start to monitor and be perceptive about how that person is behaving, how their moods are, are they frustrated? Are they, are they you know, enjoying their work? Are they hating it? You can start to keep your eye out for that because you'll be able to see trends as you go along. That's really important. And it, it's a, one of the big signs of spotting mental health challenges, which is a big thing you know, that's rising in importance in the workplace, is differences in behavior and routine. So for a manager to be able to have consistent time with their team is really important because they can start to spot these signs that maybe something's not right. Maybe they're not motivated. Maybe they're having challenges at home. Maybe um, you know something else is going on. So that's why I think those one-on-one time is super important, yeah. So you recommend weekly if you can make it work? I guess if you have a large team and you can't you know, commit to one-on-one for every single one of those bi-weekly, but weekly is your preferred cadence? Yeah, I think weekly is good. And and sometimes I'd, I'd recommend changing it up as well in terms of changing up the location, the setting, you know, if you can, you know, okay, we're working remotely now, but maybe if you, if you can have a coffee meeting or something, go out for a cafe or something, do the one-on-one there, change it up a little bit as well sometimes. So, so you can try different environments um, that get you out of the workplace sometimes. And in, in the Zoom space, so, you know, when everyone's working remotely, 
Um, you might even go, you know what, let's go into the garden today. I'll have my, I'll take my call in the garden, right? And just that change of setting, which may sound a bit silly, but it's just this changing up of the routine and the space so people can get a bit more variety and they might, they might open up differently in those spaces. Um, but yeah, I think bi-weekly if you've got a really big team. I think I'd hesitate to say monthly and I have worked in companies where it's been monthly, but when you look back at it, that's sort of 12 times a year, which is really not much. Um, and I start to see that as possibly not, not enough to be able to give that space to the team member to really, um, you know, to open up. And, and I'd say to leaders who will say, or people who are saying, you know, um, you know, I'm too busy to do all that stuff. I'd have a look at what you're doing and your priorities and seeing whether you can carve out time for your team because your team are what you're giving you. They're doing the work. That should be your number one priority, I would assume. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, you've got your own boss as well, so you've got to cater for them, but you know, your people are what give you your leadership role and, you know, do the work for you to make you successful. So it's pretty important priority from my point of view. I think the reason why people gloss over one-on-ones is because the results of them are somewhat intangible. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you can see a direct improvement in Justin's performance from having a one-on-one meeting. There's no measurement necessarily that many organizations can make about that, but it is about building trust and building that relationship like you mentioned with your manager. And that's what's so important about it. And that's why I think people, some leaders gloss over it and say, well, it's not getting me results. So therefore I don't need to have that meeting. And I think that's a, a big, uh, big mistake. Yeah. I did not see it in the moment until I, once again, started putting some some thoughts together for my 90-day review, and I realized it's probably the most important meeting on my calendar every single week. A, I can move projects along that was at a holding spot with my manager. It's a really great way for us to just get out four or five things. Hey, did you see this email? What are your thoughts? Cool. Awesome. Which is great. We bring in, um, I wouldn't say every every meeting that we have, but we do bring in or cycle in some of that future conversation. It's always kind of a pulse check. And I think once a month is is probably a good cadence for that piece to yep. it. Um, and then also a big thing, and, and I don't know if other people were struggling with this at work, but um, with remote work, but it's building a relationship outside of just the the tangible business things with your manager, you know, if all you're doing is jumping on zoom calls with them and that's your only time, um, you, you really don't get to understand or, or, or have a relationship with them. And, and luckily I walked into a relation, a seven year relationship already with my current manager, but it's been great for us. You know, typically we, we actually have two one-on-ones. We have a Tuesday and a Friday and 10 or 15 minutes of each one of those is just talking about what's going on in your life. What did you do this weekend? Mm. What do you got plans yep. for? Because I, I have realized now working remote for the last couple of years that that piece is so important as well. You don't get that water cooler talk anymore or that pre-meeting or post-meeting conversation with your manager anymore. You actually kind of have to schedule that out a little bit. And I think one-on-ones, it's great just to add an extra 10 minutes to that, build the conversation up at the beginning with that, and then move into some of the more business things. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree with you. And I was working with a manager recently who was, his personality was very much of, 
um, one that thrived on that small talk. So he would naturally build relationships with his team through through small talk, a bit of a conversation in the kitchen, you know, making a coffee. Oh, what'd you do on the weekend? How's your life? And all those sorts of things. And all that got taken away immediately as soon as the remote working started. Um, because no longer you are just walking, you know, he used to do it when you're walking to a meeting room or, or in the kitchen. And those spaces don't exist in the remote world because it, like you say, every time you're in a meeting, it's like, bang, here's the topic of the meeting. Subject is, you know, performance statistics for the following week or, you know. And he said he had to, like you were suggesting, introduce small talk time to meetings or have small small calls with his team where he would just call them up and say, hey, how are you going? Have a bit of a chat without talking about work specifically mm. to help him build up that relationship and, and to help to build that rapport, um, which he used to be able to do very naturally. And now he has to work at it um, because he found that people were sort of perceiving him as just about work now because he goes into the Zoom call and he goes, okay, now we're talking about this topic and then see you later. And it's all just work, work, work. Whereas normally he would be much more about, hey, what'd you do on the weekend? Have a chat and then talk about work. And it's much more natural. So yeah, he just had to work a little bit harder on injecting those personal bits into the conversation, which I think was really important. Hmm. Yeah. Ben, as we close up this conversation, I want to touch on one more piece. Maybe we can blitz through it and I'll try to keep my, my questions limited here. But you often mention, mention this 1960s study about teachers and high-performing students. Can you share that study and the leadership lesson that you learned from that study? Yeah, this, this is a really cool one because it's, so the study was that um, it was a test done to assess sort of motivation and performance in school children. So they had a test a test class where they were, the, the teachers in that class were told that their students had been identified as super high performers because they got some score on an aptitude test. So these kids here are really awesome because they've got this performance, they've passed this test and done really well. These other kids, not so much. They didn't get a great grade on that performance test. So in reality, there, the, there had been no test. The teachers were just told these results and these results weren't real. But what they found was the teachers started to gravitate to the children who had been labelled as high performers. They spent more time um, working with them, supporting them, and you know giving them the attention that they needed. And as a result, their actual performance in the class improved, um, as opposed to the kids who had not been labelled as high performers. So what this became known as is a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is something I see in leadership quite a lot as well, which really is about the way you believe, your belief system or the beliefs you have about somebody or something drives your behavior. And then the external, and then you, basically your behavior sends signals out into the workplace or world and people pick up on that and then they respond to it accordingly. So an example, I'll use, a, I'll use a negative example first. So the negative example was, I used to work with someone who was being given a project to do for the first time. So she'd never done project management and it wasn't really her core role, but it was an opportunity for her to develop and lead something. And so this was someone who worked in a different team than mine. 
and I was given uh, she's so her her manager asked me to sort of mentor her because I was doing project management at the time. I said, yeah, that's fine. And so I worked with her and um, I would have conversations with her every week about how she was going with the project. And what I noticed was her manager was quite a nervous type and she she was constantly checking up on this person um, and saying to her, oh, you haven't done this yet, you should do that. Why you haven't spoken to them yet? Oh, you should really do that. Why haven't you got onto that yet? And she was really freaking out this person. And what those, those signs that she gave off, that lack of confidence, really really affected the the person who was trying to manage the project because what it told her was that her manager had no confidence in her ability and so what that led to she her manager believed she couldn't do the job then she started to see that see those signs given off and then her behavior changed to being more tentative so she started asking for permission from her manager oh should i do this should i do that and so she became more withdrawn and more tentative and less confident. And then her performance on the project got worse because she wasn't confidently going into situations she was holding back because she was afraid that her manager didn't think she could do the job. And so then the manager would come to me and goes, oh, see, I told you she was no good at this. I told you she couldn't do it. <laughs> but, but the reason she was struggling is because the manager's um, behavior had reduce the confidence of the team member. So in that way, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. The manager said she couldn't do it. The team member thought she couldn't do it because the manager was telling her she couldn't basically. And then the manager comes back to me and goes, oh yeah, see, I told you she was useless. So that's a negative example where you're sort of, you are, you are influencing the situation through your attitude and behavior. <clears throat> and on the flip side of that, you can do it positively as well. So if you can give autonomy to someone, so another example is we gave um, a guy in another department to mine, um, a bit of a part on a project that I was leading. And I said, hey, I really need you to own this bit because I knew he had capability, but he, he sort of wasn't really stepping up to the plate. So he, he wasn't seemed to be motivated uh, in that situation. So we thought, you know, maybe we give him something to own and something to run, right? And so what I did was I gave him autonomy. I, let, I, let, I caught up with him once a week to see how he was going. Um, I gave him a lot of confidence in, uh, what I tried to do was give him the impression that I was confident about his ability to do the job. And the way I did that was to talk favorably about what he was doing. So I would talk to my executive and say, oh yeah, you know, Scott's doing a really great job um, with this, helping us with this project. And what I would do was make sure that he knew that we were saying good things about what he was doing with the project. And what that did was it made him hear that, oh, these people believe I can do this work. He started to grow in confidence. And what he really started to do was just own it. So he would do, he would stay late and I, no one was asking him to stay late, but he would stay late to do more work on the project because he really was starting to take pride in it. And he did an awesome job. And it was sort of the opposite example. Um, from the previous one, which is we showed belief and then he picked up on that. And then he thought, oh, they've really got confidence in me. I must be able to do this. So I will put more effort in and I'll actually do a better job. So that's how I see it manifest itself, similar to the school example, um, where you're, the effort you, the effort and the attitude and the signals you give off to the world influences how people respond to you. So it's a really important one for leaders and um, even, you know, if you're if you're an upcoming leader, particularly, and you're you know you've just started a leadership role, 
it can be really daunting because you may feel quite um, vulnerable in that you don't want your team members to stuff things up. But the more you get on top of them and micromanage them and check up on what they're doing all the time, the more signs you're giving off that you don't trust them. And that can actually reduce their performance. So it's a real, um, it's a real trap for new leaders, particularly because, um, because it's an easy one to fall into because you don't have that experience yet and the trust of your team. So you've really got to work hard at stopping yourself from being that micromanaging boss and, and giving people credit and letting them grow into the role. Ben, as an aspiring leader, I have learned so much from your blog. Your podcast is awesome. I love the bite-sized topics that you cover each week. If people want to check that out, you're at an easy handle. Um, it is thoughtfulleader.com. Great job picking up that domain name. Also, you have a podcast by the same name, Thoughtful Leader Podcast. From what I found, you can find it on any of your favorite podcast players. Anything else that you'd like to add or call to action? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think the yeah, thoughtfulleader.com, that's the best place to find out what I'm doing and get in touch with me. And I'd encourage any listeners, you know, you have questions about leadership or want advice in any kind, just go through my contact page, send me an email. I'm happy to respond to those. Awesome. Then my final question for you. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? So, yeah, this is a really interesting question. I think my topic would be, the subject of the class would be about becoming good organizational citizens is what I'm going to call it. I'd probably I'd probably jazz it up to make it sound more exciting, but... Um, what it would be is teaching people um, how organizations run and giving case studies and examples of dysfunction in organizations and really functional and organizations with great cultures and teaching people how to be, how to show the right behaviors within organizations to create good cultures. So that might be about pushing back on things, speaking up when you need to, um, identifying poor behaviours, all those sorts of things and growing in confidence in your role. I think those are really important because what I found is, especially at college level, you sort of, you know, you're taught the technical skills a lot and you get some exposure to workplaces, but in general, people go out there and they just get dumped into this workplace and it could have a terrible culture. There's not that awareness um, of, of what it takes to, what, what makes a good organization and a bad organization, you know, in terms of the way people behave in the way that people uh, show up to work every day. So I think there's a, there's a big, a big value in providing people with an opportunity to learn about dysfunctional cultures and great cultures within organizations so they can start to behave in a way when they hit the ground running, you know, after college to create these good workplaces. And I think it would be, it'd be a, you know, a lot of guest speakers coming in, talking about different case studies, different organizations, and then a lot of um, organizational behavior type uh, content as well in terms of what motivates people, how people act and those sorts of things and, and creating good environments for people to work in. And you don't have to, it's not really a leadership sort of topic. It could be for, for anyone. And even someone who's gonna go out of college and then create their own business that could be a good good thing. I, I just think there's a need for something like that. 
been it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you spending so much time with me at I believe is like seven a.m. your time. So thanks for getting up it early, um, yeah. having no, this conversation it's so good. with it's me. So good. <laughs> no, it's good. Thank you very much for having me, Justin. And um, yeah, I get up quite early anyway, so it's all good. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Ben. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.